are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. Welcome to the Organization for Human Brain Mapping Neurosalience podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini. Here, I interview brain scientists of all types and discuss their work, as well as the latest developments, controversies, findings, and challenges in the field of brain mapping. Today's guest is Dr. Lucina Uden. Dr. Uden received her bachelor's in neuroscience and also with a philosophy minor from UCLA in 2001. In 2006, she received her PhD in psychology and cognitive neuroscience from UCLA as well. She did a postdoc at NYU School of Medicine and the Child's Study Center. Her mentor there was Xavier Castellanos. She did a second postdoc at the Stanford Cognitive and Systems Neuroscience Laboratory with Vinod Vinod. From 2010 to 13, she was an instructor in the School of Medicine and Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences and Child Psychiatry at Stanford University. And uh, in 2014, she moved to the University of Miami, starting as an assistant professor, and then in 2017, becoming an associate professor, and then finally in 2018, director of the Cognitive and Behavioral Neuroscience Division uh, in the Department of Psychology. So the exciting news is that uh, starting any day now, she'll be back at UCLA in her new position as director of the new analysis core, the new brain analysis core, and she'll be continuing on with her research. So uh, Lucina uh, is currently a handling editor in Neuro- with NeuroImage and a senior editor in Network Neuroscience, the journal Network Neuroscience. She's written actually two books, one simply called Insula in 2014, and another called Salience Network of the Human Brain in 2016. In 2017, she won the OHBM Young Investigator Award, and recently in 2021, she won the OHBM Diversity Award. So over the past 15 years, Lucina has rapidly risen in the ranks of respected cognitive neuroscientists who effectively and creatively use cutting-edge MRI and fMRI. She and her lab investigate the relationship between brain connectivity and cognition in typical and atypical development, wielding the tools of functional connectivity analysis of resting state, functional magnetic resonance imaging data, as well as structural connectivity analysis of diffusion-weighted imaging data. So in this podcast, we talk about the constant struggle shared by all scientists in this field to find just the right paradigms, acquisition tools, and analysis approaches to add insight into fundamentals of brain organization and how it relates to behavior. We talk about cognitive flexibility, autism, the salience network, and the need for an ontology of network nomenclature so that the field can better communicate, share, and understand their findings. We also discuss the NIH's goal of having a research domain criteria, so otherwise called RDOC, to organize and understand disorders in a more brain data-driven manner. Uh, Lastly, we discuss our perspective on advancing diversity in science, you know, where it's at right now, where it might be going, how long it might take, uh, and, you know, just generally her perspective of that struggle as well. So it was a really fun conversation that at least uh, for me and hopefully uh, for you will sharpen up and put in perspective the many challenges facing functional brain imaging research. I mean, we, we talked a lot about her work 
but also about you know where you know you're sort of up against a um, not really a wall, but but barriers of you know upper temporal and spatial resolution of fMRI, noise, subject variability. How do you actually work with the tools to derive insight about the brain and actually eventually make it useful clinically? So it was a really useful discussion, and uh, I hope you enjoy it. Okay, Lucina Uden, um, or actually, as I as I learned in one of your talks in your introduction, it's the proper pronunciation of your last name is Udin, but uh, everyone says Udin. But uh, <laughs> um, thanks for thanks for coming in, on this uh, Neurosalience podcast. Thanks, Peter. Actually, it's really funny that uh, most people don't bother to correct when their last names are said wrong, and then years go by and you realize it's been twenty years of people saying it a certain way. Should I interject now? And I finally decided, okay, it's time. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, there's so much to talk about. Uh, you've been incredibly active uh, in neuroscience and fMRI over the years. And uh, I just want to maybe start the conversation, you know, it, it, and it's actually kind of uh, nice uh, and interesting where you've, how you've positioned yourself exactly at the interface of, of methodology, like cutting edge methodology with fMRI and and really interesting questions of how, how to use it to understand uh, specific networks in the brain and also pathology as it relates to the networks. And so that's wonderful. But how did you actually get there? Uh, so, you know, you started at UCLA and, you know, then you did your, your postdocs uh, at, at uh, NYU with Xavier Castellanos and then, and then Stanford. And then, and then finally you, you, you came to uh, Miami was there anything, you know, basically maybe try to trace your path and what you were thinking along the way and, and how your, your research agenda formed? Thanks, Peter. Yeah, it's always a, a, you can always make up a story that sounds like you really knew what you were doing and had a plan. But, you know, most of people, when they start out, they're, you know, in college, maybe just in their 20s, don't really have a good sense of the field yet or what would be important questions or we can't really see the future and think, well, here's where the field's going to go, so I better position myself that way, right? We, it's always in retrospect, you think, well, that really worked or that really didn't. So, um, so to, you know, I could weave a story about how I had a grand plan, but I, I don't think I did any more than anyone else did in the early 20s. I, you know, I went through, um, I was a neuroscience major as an undergraduate, um, uh, again, at UCLA, and I had a minor in philosophy, and I always kind of thought it was interesting, you know, dabbling in those philosophy of mind classes. And I was struck by back then, you know, uh, I finished my bachelor's degree in 2001. And that back then in the philosophy of mind classes, they wouldn't really talk about the brain until maybe the very last lecture. And then they would say something along the lines of it probably happens in the brain or we should, <laughs> you know, probably think about the brain a little bit. But, you know, but now, as you can see, there's philosophers of mind who are neuroscientists themselves and the field has moved along. Uh, and I think it's it's uh, it's interesting to see how how much um, people are savvy, as it were, about the brain these days, and and don't leave it out anymore in these discussions that are are more philosophical or more um, you know psychology oriented. It's like everyone cares and thinks about the brain more now. But you know, I I just kind of uh, you know was interested in it the way a, a young naive person would be. Ooh, the brain is cool. You know, consciousness is interesting. <laughs> All that kind of stuff. <laughs> and and you know so. And then I realized, well, um, you know, I've got to finish the undergrad degree and then do something. 
And I wasn't really uh, wanting to go to med school like most of my colleagues. So I figured, um, you know, I can stay in school and, and keep working on these problems, uh, you know, continue to get my PhD. So, I, you know, I fell into it almost in the sense of, um, yeah, <laughs> I hate to characterize myself this way right off the bat, but I was lazy enough to not want to go to med school. I was lazy <laughs> enough to, to not want to, you know, um, take on what I thought would be a really strenuous profession. And I thought, <laughs> it sounds funny to say, but I thought doing a PhD was the easy way out of, of having to make any real life decisions, like, you know, getting a real job or going to, you know, uh, a highly competitive profession. Um, I should preface that with nowadays, it's gotten so competitive to get into PhD programs that I'm sure I wouldn't have gotten in, you know, with the, with the few skills and few <laughs> experiences that I had. But back then, I just thought, well, I really like studying the brain. And let me see if I can keep on doing that for as long as possible. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, you know, you have mentors along the way and you run into colleagues who, you know, shape your interests in various ways. And sometimes opportunities just fall into your lap. And uh, I was always intrigued by methods because I realized, um, you know, there's only so much you can do to get at the human brain, right? You can't uh, cut it open as easily as you might with animals and, and all that. So the manipulation aspect, you have to do a lot of inference. Um, so I just became interested in, um, you know, what are the techniques we can use? fMRI is, of course, a big one, but in my graduate uh, work, I did some EEG and some uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation studies um, and behavior, of course, in the psychology department, just reaction time kind of studies and uh, realized, wow, each method tells you different things. They don't always converge. This is messy. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that, that was the beginning. And it, of course, only got messier the further I got in. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's actually right. I mean, that's the problem we all grapple with, with, you know, with fMRI or whatever, is that, you know, are we looking at the right spatial and temporal scale? You know, does this really reveal, you know, any more than just, you know, initially, you know, fMRI is thought, you know, it's like, is it just cartography? And, you know, does that really explain, you know, mechanisms and, you know, people try to look one, one scale lower? Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a constant challenge to try to triangulate between all these to sort of you know build a model as to what's going on. Yeah, I was actually uh, so just to, you know I, I was planning on talking about this at the end, but it was just figured might as well mention it now that one of your first studies, uh, you know, it was it was intriguing. It sort of struck me, uh, you know, at at UCLA where you where you were using TMS to. Uh, knock out the ability to I recognize your own face, uh, which was really interesting. I actually, you know, the whole self recognition, it's not necessarily looking in the mirror, but looking at a picture of your face. And, and I don't know if you want to just mention that briefly, if you if there's been any other studies since then, because I, I, I haven't followed that literature, but uh, <laughs> it's intriguing. It is. Um, yeah. And I, I jumped in, like I said, a naive youngster thinking I'm going to study consciousness and that's the problem I'm going to work on my whole career. And so, you know, so many brighter people than myself have tried to tackle this. I realize now that's a big thing to bite off. But, you know, at that stage of my career, I thought, let's give this a go and, and try one way of operationalizing consciousness is just being aware of yourself. Right. And there's some interesting literature about, um, you know, the kinds of higher primates that can recognize themselves in the mirrors and the ones who can't. Um, there's um, interesting developmental psych literature about how kids can recognize themselves in the mirror at around age two. It's about when they start using personal pronouns like I and me. It's like kind of related to when they start thinking of themselves as a self. And it's, it's always been a, a fun um, area to, to look at. And so when I told you know, my 
my advisor at the time, uh, what a steady consciousness is, was like, take a look at this paper on self-recognition because um, that's more tractable than consciousness <laughs> in some ways, right? You can take a picture of someone and show it to themselves. So my whole dissertation was just, you know, taking pictures of people and then, you know, either putting them in a scanner or doing TMS or EG, at, you know, while they viewed these different photographs and, um, uh, you know, seeing what the brain does in terms of its reaction. So it was, um, you know, kind of my first, Actually, it was a good lesson. And okay, when you have a big question in neuroscience, you're probably going to have to break it down into something more tractable. And then again, that tractable thing might not actually be measuring what you wanted to measure in the first place. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, there's been a lot of work uh, on this topic since. The kind of interest in the topic waxes and wanes over the years, but it does seem to be that there's these kind of frontal parietal systems that maybe are broadly involved in everything, but, but seem to be um, involved very much in self-based recognition above and beyond just uh, familiar faces. And, um, and there's some disruptions to these systems in individuals with autism, for example. So um, this is, there's, it's kind of a long windy road, but uh, I don't think many people realize the word autism comes from the Greek root of autos, which actually refers to self, right? Wow. And so, the, uh, so autism is this disorder of extreme self-focus um, and less interest in social interaction, right? Less interest in the outside world. And so, um, you know, this sort of interest in the self got me onto the road of thinking about autism and other related disorders where you have disturbances of self-concept. Um, so <laughs> maybe this is, again, a long-winded answer to... <laughs> yeah, and like, like any of these techniques, like fMRI or TMS or whatever, it's like you're just trying to modulate something see something that, you know, changes and, mm -hmm. and observe the behavior, observe the brain activation. And then, and then, you know, we're, this is what we're doing. You know, we, we, right. uh, with that, with that sort of these tools. Mm -hmm. So one of my favorite, uh, you know, it's at least for myself, I'm, I'm more of a methodologist, but, but mm -hmm. one of my favorite concepts or networks, I mean, is, is the salience network actually, you know, part of the name of this podcast, Neurosalience. <laughs> Uh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> is, is based on that. And it's just because, I mean, for, for me, at least, um, uh, it just, it seems so uh, central to what we do. And, you know, what we're constantly doing every day, every moment is deciding, you know, with this external and internal stimuli, what's important, what to focus on, what to, you know, think about. And, and, and that's essentially salience. You can say it probably better than I can, but um, and it seems so close, like you were saying with consciousness. I mean, it seems so close to something related to the sense of uh, uh, of your of you know your subjective experience. And it's and so and it's so important to so many pathologies. It's so central. So it, you, it seems like in your studies, and we'll talk about this. Uh, you know, you're you're picking of the salience network as as uh, you know particularly interesting. Is is I think. Uh, I think is and will be, you know, really fruitful as far as that's concerned. Yeah, I mean, it's it's exactly why I got into it. And, uh, you know, the funny thing is, everything sort of comes together and you can tell a story in the end. But I, I had been working on this meta-analysis with uh, colleagues at NYU. So Adriana DiMartino started the study and she just did a, a meta-analysis of the ta task activation studies in autism. And there were, at the time, many theories abound about, okay, the amygdala theory of autism, cerebellum theory, superior temporal slocus. But in our meta-analysis, we, we kept seeing um, the insula and the anterior cingulate, you know, key nodes of the salience network. 
they pop up as being, you know, differentially activated in individuals who are diagnosed with autism. And I thought, huh, that's funny because there's no theory of autism that really involves those brain regions, at least there wasn't at the time. And so I just, it struck me that um, there's some areas of the brain that are just so important for everyday functions that if there's any disruption there, it's going to probably be related to some symptoms of autism, but maybe also anxiety, depression, schizophrenia, it turns out all these things uh, can be um, traced back to some alterations in, in what we're now calling the salience network. And of course, other brain systems are involved and you know, it's not just the salience network does everything. But I think when you start to identify some core processes and core brain circuits that are just you know, universally important in, in something as, as critical as detecting what to pay attention to in the world or detecting, you know, how to focus or how to behave in any given situation. Those are, if there's any amount of disruption to that system, you're going to see it come out in a variety of ways. So, um, yeah, it, it uh, you know, I guess the autism interest brought me into the salience network, but then it, you know, the, the interesting network itself kept me there for many years. Yeah. So, so in, in that context, and, and maybe we'll, we'll get into talking about autism as well. I mean, it's, it's, I, think, I think it's worthwhile to you know, talk about some of these the spectrums of disorders. Mm-hmm. But why don't we just, uh, I, I figured um, a lot of your work related to autism actually was, and, and this has sort of struck me initially when I was looking at your papers, is mapping cognitive flexibility, mm-hmm. uh, sort of understanding cognitive flexibility. So, and, and, and I usually, I just had a, you know, as I was reading your papers, I'm thinking, how does one define that? Because it seems that, you know, it's very, uh, you know, it's many different timescales and many different contexts. Mm-hmm. So how do you define uh, cognitive flexibility just to start with? Yeah, that's a, a good question. <laughs> and um, luckily, I, I did a bunch of reviews on this topic over the yes. course of the pandemic. So I got to see how the field thinks about this. And it seems like the most general or um, you know, the most consensus around the definition is just the ability to flexibly adjust behavior in the face of changing environmental demands. Uh, and of course, um, when I started looking into this, I realized that in the animal literature, they usually use this term behavioral flexibility um, to talk about things like reversal learning when an animal learns to change the mapping of a you know, stimulus outcome kind of mapping so that they can receive a reward. They call that you know, reversal learning or behavioral flexibility. And I realize it's kind of similar to what we are calling cognitive flexibility in humans, just being able to you know, change your routine or being able to um, you know, switch mappings, like press this button uh, when you see a red dot, but press that button when you see a green dot or whatever, you know, just all the, the, the ways we come up with for testing flexibility are, are kind of getting at the same thing, which is, can you learn something new and apply it um, you know, very quickly, I guess, <laughs> is, is what we would say is, is flexibility. But yeah, there's, there's that, term. so there's the term cognitive flexibility, there's the term behavioral flexibility. I've also seen the term psychological flexibility, or I guess some people call it mental flexibility. That seems is more used in the clinical realm um, to talk more about kind of like day-to-day behaviors. Um, and then on the opposite, like cognitive rigidity, which you often see in like Parkinson's literature is, is used uh, that term as well. So yeah, there's a different ways of defining it, but I think the, the pandemic has really shown us what it means to be flexible, right? Well, we've yeah. just changed the way we do everything. We're doing this interview over Zoom instead of in person. You know, we, uh, we're sitting around in our pajamas most of the day instead yeah. of putting on pants. You know, but all of that is just flexible behaviors. And you could see that some people adapted better than others to um, these changes, right? Uh, in particular, um, you know, there's 
folks who have uh, troubles with flexible behaviors like individuals with autism really don't like disruptions to routines. In fact, one of the um, you know, key characteristics is called insistence on sameness, right? So wanting things to be the same every, every time. So I, I think we've had sort of real life examples of flexibility and inflexibility um, enforced or forced upon us because of, of this last year and a half. Yeah, no, it seems that, right. I mean, it seems like it's sort of like, you know, fundamental to, you know, it's an evolutionary selected trait. Obviously the world changes and, and context changes and you always have to, you know, be optimally adaptive. Um, mm-hmm. But it did seem, you know, like for instance, um, and, I, and I, I'm just sort of thinking for myself in terms of, mm-hmm. you know, if you're, you know, you, you had a, a couple of paradigms for pulling this out. And I was trying to think, you know, like for instance, um, you know, there's the, you had a great example of, of this set task and there's a game, you know, we, I play it with my kids every once in a while. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you have a bunch of cars and you're like, okay, what, you know, what, what makes a set? And right, right. it requires a, a certain amount of nimbleness. Mm-hmm. I can imagine, I could imagine potentially somebody with autism doing an incredible job on that because mm-hmm. they're, because like within the context of playing that game, uh, yeah, we, we mm-hmm. do that well, um, right? Maybe and and but then if you said, oh, now we're going to play a, a different game, they're like, no, I don't want to play another, game. <laughs> right? Um, and so it's sort of like they're not flexible in some contexts, and it seems right. like there's some very there's another dimension of of con- contextual this. Yeah, no, you're right, and, and you've touched on this really important point, which is why do these measures in the laboratory of flexibility not always line up with real world flexible behavior. So those kids with autism, if you sit them down and say, we're going to do this game, it has these rules. Like you said, some of them might um, be just fine in that structured environment. But then if you go out in the real world, oftentimes there's no instructions, right? If they say, go to the store and get some milk, you know, which store do I take the bus? Do I do, you know, there's all these, uh, what if the road is blocked, you know? (laughs) So it's a lot more of uh, thinking on your feet and coming up with solutions, creative solutions. In fact, I think flexibility is, is related to creativity in many ways, yes. com- you know, coming up with a new way of looking at something. So, um, so it's true. And there's a lot of uh, recent work that's, that's focused on this point, which is that when we measure something in the lab, we've titrated it to make it, you know, pull out this construct we think we've identified, but it doesn't, it often doesn't map onto what we think of as that sort of layperson description of flexibility that we've been talking about. It, it often doesn't map onto behavior reports or self-reports or other things like that. So it's a challenge. Yeah, it's a challenge. And it, it makes me realize, I mean, and also we'll talk a little bit later about your uh, cognitive ontology work, but it seems that, and, I, and actually, once again, I'm, I'm coming from a naive perspective where I don't know the field of you know behavioral neuroscience that well, but I'm sure that you know, you could almost imagine flexibility, cognitive flexibility is a term mm-hmm. that, that means something, but it's sort of like, it seems like it could be broken down into like elements uh, mm-hmm. uh, more in which, it, or it could be organized in some ontological sort of way where you could actually, you know, have, you know, this set of, you know, elemental behaviors and then, and then test that, you know, if you, if you just right. had a better construct of, of what the behavior hierarchy is in that sense. Yeah, big big question. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's uh, it's it's hard, and that's actually part of the art of doing fMRI. Is, <laughs> right. Is sort of you know, if you're not doing resting state, then you have to find something that it's like a litmus test. You have to find something that pulls out something that you think you're looking for, and then <laughs> yeah. and then look at it. And so, yeah, that's 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 the name of the game, pretty much. <laughs> um, so okay, so uh, uh, so it's this switch gears a little bit. I mean, you had this really wonderful uh, 
Nature Reviews neuroscience paper back in 2015 on salience processing and insular cortical function and dysfunction. Uh, you also wrote a book. I mean, actually, you wrote two books on on uh, the salience network and also the insula. I, I know <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite brain region, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah, and so it seems like okay. So you you hinted on this before. So the insula and the salience network, it's related to a, a lot of pathologies, uh, as you mentioned. It sort of hinges upon. It seems like it's very central to that. Um, everything mm-hmm. from autism to maybe ADHD to some degree. Uh, psychosis and dementia. Um, and you noticed that it was mostly in the right insula. I mean, it seems mm-hmm. like that's, and so why do you think that is just, um, I'm kind of curious why there's this asymmetry. Uh, in that yeah, this is a great question. Um, when I first got, uh, you know, into this brain area, um, I had been moving uh, to do my second postdoc over at Bedozman and lab at Stanford, and they they kept finding this interesting uh, result with network analysis. So if you take a bunch of brain areas and you use causal modeling approaches to see you know who influences what, um, they found that the right insula tends to be uh, basically in the well. If you want to use the word causality loosely because it's fMRI, but you can predict what's going to happen in other brain regions based on what was going on in in the right insula. Um, so, you know, they called it a causal outflow hub um, in the sense of, uh, you know, I don't want to get into all the semantics about whether you can really get at causality from fMRI or not. But, you know, if you if you use the methods that we are calling causal you know methods in the field, um, you can often predict what's going to happen in other parts of the brain from the insula. And it seemed to be stronger on the right than the left, just empirically from from the studies we've done. But, um, you know, other groups may have found differently. And I thought a lot about this over the years because the insula also falls into what Corbetta calls the ventral attention network. Um, you know, it's one of those core regions alongside the temporoparietal junction. Um, and in any case, and that ventral attention network seems to be right lateralized as well yeah. for some reason. Yes. Um, and so maybe we should be asking him, why is that network right lateralized? But uh, the salience network seems to be bilateral at least, but the, the most of the stronger findings um, regarding the causal outflow we've noted on the right hemisphere and might have something to do with those bottom of attention uh, processes that the ventral attention network seems to be much involved in. Um, that's the best theory I've got for now. <laughs> yeah, no, that actually, that's a good argument. That's a good um, observation. Where, right, if people get lesions, for instance, in their uh, ventral temporal uh, cortex, it seems like that really affects their spatial attention bias and much mm-hmm. more so than if they get in their, in their left. Yeah, that's true. That's interesting. So there could just be this this overall right bias in that in that regard. So you mentioned, and actually, I will get. I do want to bring that up a little bit. Um, but you mentioned also, you know, the, the insula is like a causal outflow hub. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, and I was, you know, looking at your review article. You have this nice diagram from from Seeley, I guess, uh, from mm-hmm. this paper, and it, it really shows this the salience network connection to this loop to, uh, you know either visceromotor signals or interception. And it, it's basically this hub. Mm-hmm. But then the question comes to my mind, it's like, okay, so what, it, it seems like it's very, it's iterative, but I mean, mm-hmm. is there something that controls the the gain or, or of the salience network that's outside of this loop in some sense, some, some cortical process? You know, maybe I'm trying to get once again at not really consciousness, but but something that, that is not in the in this loop, but more just as a driver of you know the responsivity of the salience network. I don't know if I'm really explaining myself well. Yeah, no, it's a good question. It's it's almost 
thinking of, it makes me think of a homunculus, you know, like what's, what's driving the driver. Right. What's <laughs> right. driving the driver. <laughs> like the whole ghost in the machine. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that, I think maybe, maybe a little bit, I'm more influenced nowadays by these ideas that, um, you know, the brain is sort of a prediction machine and, and kind of doing a lot of internal processing and not just a stimulus, uh, you know, it's not just passively responding to stimuli and, and doing like input output stuff, but there's sort of a lot of ongoing spontaneous activity. And that's what we're all kind of interested in characterizing. Why, why is there so much spontaneous activity that takes up so much metabolic resources and, um, you know, it's just always there, right? <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I, I don't have an answer to, is there anything, you know, specifically that drives the insula? But sometimes when we do things like latency analyses, or if you look at some of the intracranial recording studies, it's interesting just to note the timing of these events, right? Like the, the insula seems to come on a little bit earlier um, in the, you know, terms of response profile in response to these stimuli. It comes on like earlier than some of the cortical areas. Of course, you've got the visual areas first, but, you know, um, in terms of the processing scheme, it, it does seem to be earlier than some of the other areas, at least that I've, I've seen. Uh, you know, but if you think of it as sort of um, reading the temperature of, of everything in the, it, that's going on with the body as well, the homeostatic kind of uh, you know, signals and, and arousal and all of the other um, sort of maintenance things that go on in the, in the brain and body, if the salience network um, can be sort of the alarm system for what's going on. So right in the middle of this conversation, if the fire alarm goes off, we're gonna, you know, we'll see activity in both of our salience networks. But also if you just remember, I left the stove on at home, it, it's, a, it's just a memory, but it's causing you to, it'll probably cause you to be, you know, more awake <laughs> just to, to realize that you, you did that. Um, so to me, it's interesting that the, the responses of the salience network aren't directly tied to stimulus, uh, you know, presentations that are ongoing in the world, but something like a memory can trigger activation there. Something like just the, the thought of or nervousness about something you have coming up because you see like overactivation of this network and anxiety disorders, for example. So um, it seems to be this kind of really general alarm system, at least that's, that's one way of thinking about it. Right. In general, it is a sort of a question in neuroscience, right? Where, you know, certainly if something precedes something else, it's sort of a, a causal mechanism and, and people are always concerned and wondering, you know, what is, what's the essence of the spontaneous activity that might be the, the driver of this. And so, so it's interesting also, uh, Corbetta just you mentioned Corbetta. Mm -hmm. He actually, uh, you know, he has a really interesting paper on trying to explain what the resting state is. And it's sort of, you know, it ties it all in with, uh, you know, Friston's model. And as you mentioned, sort of like minimizing surprise. And mm -hmm. so basically you have models of the world and you want to, our goal is to minimize the, the difference between the model and, and the world. And, mm -hmm. but during rest and our spontaneous activity sort of primes these networks and sort of is, is working on ways of optimizing uh, our models uh, mm -hmm. offline. Um, yeah, so it was sort of an interesting. It was it was the first time I actually saw a causality or, or a cause or a purpose for resting. So <laughs> that's good. Yeah, I mean we have to come up with something, right, <laughs> as a theory to test. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean it is so metabolically demanding. It must be important. Um, <laughs> all right. So so maybe I'll maybe I'll uh, kind of delve into this a little bit. But um, you know, you had one. You, you mentioned one. Uh, you know, like you you know other ways of probing insular activity is, is, you know, either with distractor tasks or, mm -hmm. or, or the salience networks. And, and it was, you know, there's 
certainly many different ways of potentially probing. Um, uh, and, and as you mentioned, there's, it's, it's sort of an art to try to figure out the best probe. But regarding, so, so a big question, oh, and actually I just want to back up a second. So you mentioned causality. Um, so with fMRI, it's really hard. I mean, there's many different ways of trying to infer causality. Either you could you know, modulate tasks and see which ones are related to which people have also tried looking at, you know, the latency of the hemodynamic response. Right. And I'm generally skeptical about that because uh, just there's such a spread and it's sort of random. Uh, I don't know. What are your thoughts on, on trying to interpret <laughs> yeah. based on latency uh, causality? Yeah. I mean, you're the expert there, so I'd have to, <laughs> I'd have to defer, but no, I, you know, there was a lot of talk in the early days when people started using, you know, Granger causal analysis, for example, and this idea that if you have these really large discrepancies in HRF in different brain regions, then essentially there's just too much noise to be able to estimate anything. Um, and, you know, that's a, a fair critique, I guess. But my question is like, do we know for sure? Maybe you know for sure, uh, like how much variability there is in the HRF across different coracal regions. If, is, it, is it truly an impossible task because of that? I mean, for myself, I mean, mm -hmm. I, I think that, uh, you know, there's plus or minus two seconds maybe in the human mm -hmm. response, uh -huh. but, but if you like modulate a task, if you like mm -hmm. change the timing of the task, the, the accuracy there within each voxel is pretty high. I mean, it's within mm. to hundred milliseconds. And so you can, so that's, you know. Yeah, it's uh well, I mean, I guess Kristen will tell you that's why you have dynamic causal modeling as a different approach that looks more at the latent states and makes all these assumptions there. So I guess, you know, people have their definitions of causality and then they try to find an approach that, that works. But what's nice about, uh, as we were talking about earlier about methods is you can, use, for example, TMS to try to, um, you know, disrupt the re cortical region that you think is important. And then you could use that as a measure of causality, right? You say, well, right. I've knocked, knocked out this parietal lobe region, and now you can't do X. Um, that's a little closer, probably, to our intuitive notions of what causality means. And then, of course, there was the lesion studies that have been around since beginning of time, I guess, in neuroscience that told us, like, when Broca's region is gone, you've got this, you know, aphasia, um, but what I, what I've been, you know, most interested in more recently is how network approaches can tell us like the assumptions that you would make while well, this node is gone and that function is down. They're not, they're not always borne out because you have these complex networks that can compensate in many ways. And, um, I've had some interesting data from hemispherectomy patients, you know, that have a whole left hemisphere removed, but still have pretty normal language development. Um, yeah. and even, even motor development on, on this side of the body that you would think, um, of course, there's deficits, but the fact that you can lose half of your brain and still recover on functions that were thought to be residing in that part of the brain is pretty amazing. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing and mysterious. Uh, right. How does the brain compensate in that regard? Yeah, it makes me think more and more about if you remember, you know, there's these dichotomies always and we swing from one side to the other. So there might have been this mass action theory way back in the early days of psychology that just all brain regions do the same thing. And if you cut out more brain regions, you'll just lose more functions, right? That's like the over grossly simplified, you know, mass action theory. And then the other modularity and phrenology and every brain region has its own function. And this area is for honesty and that area is for some other trait, right? <laughs> right? And I, I don't think anyone believes either of those extremes, right? At this point. Um, but I think network science has given us a lot of tools to think more about how it could possibly be that um, you have, all these brain, finite number of brain regions do this almost infinite number of tasks. Um, I really like this book uh, by Michael Anderson. It's about his neural reuse theory. 
it's just as it sounds like the idea that different brain regions are reused for different functions, um, yeah. you know, uh, and uh, it makes sense because we're not just adding on a new part of the brain every time we learn something new, right? <laughs> or every time we, right. um, you know, the brain hasn't evolved that much. <laughs> yeah. In human what's, what's the book called again? Oh, it's, I think it's called After Phrenology. After Phrenology. Okay. Yeah. Unless I'm mistaken. I hope I got that right. <laughs> okay. Well, but either yeah. way, either way, yeah. we'll people have enough of a thing to go on. And, and the author was who again? Michael Anderson. He's at uh, University of Western Ontario. Okay. And um, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's an interesting, um, he's a philosopher, computer scientist, neuroscientist. So he's one of those wearing three hats. But yeah. I, I thought it was one of the nicest treatments I've seen of the idea of that, um, you know, of course, we're, we're learning new things all the time. We're, we're coming up with challenges for the brain, but we're, we have to use the same hardware essentially, right. As, right. as, as adults to, to do all these different things. And the you know best way of thinking about it is that we're just reusing circuits that were there for X purpose. We're co-opting them for Y purpose. Um, and it makes some intuitive sense to me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it, but it is interesting that the brain is, you know, both, you know, it's clearly modular and, and but at the mm -hmm. same time, it's, it's somewhere between that mass action theory and, and modular. Right. It's sort of modular, but but it's sort of uh, distributed. Yeah, it's 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 both. Yeah, I always talk about this Marcel Messelon paper in 1990 because he talks about the relative specialization of cortical areas, but they're not sort of that's the only area that can do that thing. But you know, you've got some areas that if they're knocked out, you you definitely see deficits on that one thing. But other areas can, of course. Uh, jump in, as it were, and, and pick up the slack. Yeah, and and it sort of makes me think. Okay, well, maybe maybe the 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 unifying answer will be, you know, if we look at a fine enough scale. I mean, so for instance, right now you say, oh, well, the same network does the same things, but maybe mm -hmm. like even like you try to do a little bit with the insula, mm -hmm. um, if you if you parcelate it more finely, mm -hmm. you find a differentiation. But then the question is, how far? can one reasonably parcelate and, and right. you know, to, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're getting to the grandmother. So <laughs> or, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's where your layer specific fMRI really comes in. I mean, I don't know if you've seen that yourself empirically that, um, you know, you can actually differentiate uh, if you have, you know, 70 data, for example, just higher resolution. I haven't worked at that spatial scale. Yeah, no, it's, um, I mean, you, certainly it's, it's great. I mean, as far as going to that resolution, but it's also, yeah, it's sort of, it, it's a little scary in a sense, because I mean, it, 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 you do realize that there is, you know, the, 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 the organization, the, the, the scaling, you know, keeps on going down. Mm. Um, you know, probably the, the unit is on the order of columns or layers, maybe mm -hmm. if we're lucky, um, yeah. we, we can hit that spot and, and be at our limits and then, and then start to probe. But then, and so this relates in some ways, even to the concept of parcellation. So for instance, if you, you know, like what people do typically with resting state analysis, they, they take a brain and they, you know, there's many atlases out there that parcellate the brain in, in, in chunks. And then they look at the correlation between these mm -hmm. uh, um, parcellations and they find, you know, that there's differences between subjects, but I wonder how much individual subject variation is introduced by the fact that we're not parcelating each subject the same way mm -hmm. that, and also these parcels, you know, capture a lot of different things, you know, mm -hmm. but of course you would love to just have voxel wise, massive correlation. If you had enough signal to noise and enough accuracy to do this, but we mm -hmm. can't, 
And so, um, yet, and, and so it's, we're still, so right now it's like, we, you know, we have maybe a hundred parcels and then, and then we look at the correlation and, mm-hmm. and we find these networks and, we, and actually, uh, so that's actually another piece of work that, you know, you've been doing a lot and, and finding really interesting things as far as, um, that leads us into that, I guess, uh, <laughs> talking about, you know, some work, you know, it's very similar to, you know, you've been collaborating with Vince Calhoun and other groups, but, you know, sort of along the lines of, you know, you parcelate the brain and you look at just resting state or maybe during a task, uh, but mostly resting state, I guess. And then, and saying, oh, well, people with autism, you know, have, you know, reside a little bit more in one, there's like five states. Mm-hmm. That, and once again, that's even a question. How do you parcelate states? I mean, you could <laughs> like, you could come up with a hundred different states potentially if you right. had a resolution. Um, yeah. But yeah, and then five states, and then there's it, it, there's a little bit more of a dwell time in, in one, uh, mm-hmm. and and so I don't know if you want to talk about a little bit about that. I mean that sort of grappling sure. with that problem. <laughs> yeah, I mean I think clustering solutions is a problem, you know, outside of neuroscience, right? It's just a mathematical problem, and so you know we've used algorithms that people have developed and pulled them into the neuroscience domain and said let's use these algorithms and these criteria and. and but there's, no, there's never a good answer to how many parcels there are. We're asking a question, how many brain regions are there? Well, it depends how you define a brain region, right? <laughs> you, right. Can de- you can define them based on cytoarchitectonics, like the, you know, the Broadman areas back in the day, or you could define them based on each voxel's whole brain correlation with the rest of the brain, or you could, you know, and that's what ends up happening is you have many definitions and then thus many parcellations. And I mean, I think what I've seen myself and others do is just, adopt as many schemes as you can, three or four or five different parcellation schemes and see if your general findings hold up or, or if they're really influenced by your choice. I mean, uh, this is one of those things we always laugh about in the field that usually your response to reviewers letter is longer than your original paper because yeah. <laughs> someone, right, someone asks you, what about this scheme? What about if you do it without global signal regression? What if, uh, you know, and so you end up, but I think that actually makes our work stronger, right? I mean, if we show that okay, this like finding is pretty robust to all of these um, choices in terms of the parameters, et cetera, then, then it's probably, you know, hopefully it's going to hold up across, you know, other conditions. So it's probably good for the field that we're so, um, you know, we haven't quite reached a consensus on how to do these analyses and do it the same way every time because we're still learning, right? But the fact that people are asking for these things and we're doing 20 pages of supplementary material. Maybe that's not a bad thing in terms of rigor and reproducibility. It just takes more time. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and certainly right. I mean, with, I mean, with parcellation, of course. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it actually shows us something that, you know, you know, people's brains are, are different and that's interesting, it's not just noise. Um, and, and it's interesting though, too, you, in, in, in your review article, at least you compare, you know, various approaches like, you know, either a sliding window and you look mm-hmm. at connectivity changes mm-hmm. or you do these, um, you know, this Katie Chang is sort of mm-hmm. part of pioneering this co-activation patterns. Yeah. And it seems that like all of us, we're sort of, we try something and it seems like it sees the results and something right. works, something doesn't work. And, and it's interesting why, you know, why yeah. there's, you know, why don't they don't necessarily all give the same answer? <laughs> yeah, I think, it, well, we're all trying to see how much we can get in terms of understanding brain dynamics from the fMRI signal itself. And so we're saying, well, let's cut it up. Let's cut up the signal this way, see what that tells us. We'll cut it up this way and see what it tells us. But um, since we don't have the ground truth, this is where I think, you know, 
simulations and, and uh, you know, computational work really comes in. But since we don't have the ground truth, we, we're, we're not sure if we've got the full answer, right? So every, but, you know, there's, as you know, like all these dynamic approaches where you can estimate the state transitions directly from the data instead of like arbitrarily, you know, cutting off certain states. Um, I think it's like hidden Markov modeling and other approaches yes. like that. So it's, it's what I love the most about the field is how collaborative it is it is in terms of, you know, you've got these engineers and computer scientists, physicists like yourself, um, mathematicians who are just in there um, with al almost no skin in the game and want to just give you the best tools. And it's, it's really great when you can pull together a team of, of individuals like that, because they might not have a hypothesis about the insula. They might not care if you're applying this to the brain or to the weather or to, you know, some other time series variable. <laughs> so what I like the most is when you sit down with folks who are, you know, methods developers and you tell them your problem and they say, well, this is the way that atmospheric sciences has dealt with the same problem <laughs> or, yeah. you know, some field yeah. where you wouldn't think, I mean, you know, the greater time series analysis comes from economics, right? So it's it's really interesting to um, tell someone your question who has no interest in the answer, <laughs> but yeah. is, you know, it's just going to help you find the best tool for it. And I, I think we're at an interesting place in brain imaging. That's what I love about the community. And as you know, OHBM is just like that, where we give equal sort of weight and respect to all of these different fields that contribute. So we don't sort of hold one above the other in terms of importance. And I think that's really the only way we're going to, you know, crack. Yeah, I mean, it's, 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 what's nice about OHBM in general I mean, is, is that, you know, it's, it understands that the methods are, are you know, it's, it's, our understanding is actually, certainly it's important to have creative ideas and interesting experiments and good hypotheses. But, um, you know, it's really, you know, our methods are, you know, what drives us. And it's so important to be collaborative with the people that have these technical skills mm -hmm. and work as teams. So yeah, so so it is hard. I mean, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. and the reason why I ask this too is because you know, mm -hmm. even in my own group, you know, half of what we do, we do layer up and right, but also, yeah. and yeah, the other half is to try to do like you know, how do we do layer up right? You know, compare across subjects, the whole brain. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's you can't just apply you know the standard parcellation approach. You can't. How do you begin to do that? And so, coming mm -hmm. up with methods that better do that will kind of give us insights about variability of the brain and maybe. Mm -hmm. um, provide some insights in themselves, but, but even the time series, you know, we're, we're struggling with, uh, certainly we want to reduce the noise and everything like that, but we also, mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, if you have a sliding window, how big should it be? Mm -hmm. How much do you miss? Uh, how do you, right. How do you determine what your cutoff threshold for your clusters? And then right. if you don't do a sliding window, how, you know, we're trying all these dimensionality reduction techniques okay. right now, where it's more in the stage of sort of just trying stuff and, kind of understanding a little bit about what they pull out, but we're really, it's really open-ended. Yeah. And, and oftentimes we're describing the same phenomena, but using different names. And so you might not read the literature that's completely relevant to your finding because they called it something else. Um, you know, one of my uh, former graduate students, Taylor Bolt, just put out a, a bioarchive paper that's in collaboration with a bunch of folks, Shella Kilholtz and others, but um, they're talking, he's looking at what she's, her lab is called the quasi-periodic patterns or PTPs. Yes. And yeah. he's related this, he's basically showing that there's a few patterns, but they come up in all different ways that you, no matter how you slice it, you get a few of these you know, patterns and they can be described as, you know, time points along this, this quasi-periodic pattern. And he did like a million different, like every analysis under the sun that you can apply to resting state data, he showed that in some form or other, it kind of recapitulates a few canonical patterns. And he's trying to, um, you know, work through some revisions on that paper right now. But I think it's 
it's just to illustrate the, the point that like we, we might all be seeing a certain thing and we call it X and someone else calls it Y. And then when you, you know, when you try to come up with a theory of what's actually going on, you miss half the literature just because of a nomenclature problem. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and you're right there. And there's so many, and it's funny because in the sense it's still at the stage where it's not really converging that much. And it's sort of, yeah, right. You have quasi periodic patterns. And now even with vigilance changes, you have um, also these slow fluctuations. And mm-hmm. what, what does that mean? You know, it's like the field is an entire network and we have to sort of converge on. Yeah. Something. So. It's, it turns out like people don't even agree about how to use the term network, which is, you know, something we've been, as you know, we've been trying to do as a best practices group. It took us about six months just to um, <laughs> agree to disagree about what to, to call certain things in the field. So it's, um, I mean, it's all good because it prompts discussion and, and gets us to clear up, you know, confusion and things like that. But if, you know, if we, the people who are, are doing these studies can't agree, then how are we going to get our students to, you know, push the field forward? Because if every lab just does things and calls things according to their lab favorite nomenclature, we're not going to be able to talk across labs. Right? So. Yeah. So let's jump ahead to that. So I was actually <laughs> going to talk about that, but, um, and, and this is really, and, and so certainly you're working with, um, you know, with OHBM, with the standards committee mm-hmm. to try to get uh, a, a nomenclature. And, and so, right, with anything, and the more I delved into what you were doing, the more I realized, oh yeah, this is a big thing because, you know, um, you know in anything, like uh, any sort of biological systems, they have taxonomies. And I guess mm-hmm. a subcomponent of taxonomy is sort of ontology, sort of like a hierarchy of organizational terms that right. you can describe anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, and right now it's, it's weird. And I thought about that and I thought, <laughs> well, the brain, you know, it sort of does have modules and it has mm-hmm. uh, at a certain scale and they are connected and they are active in certain behaviors. But then when you think if you go forward with that, though, you, you realize, oh, maybe it's a whole continuum of networks. It's a bunch of nodes. And how do you even describe any and what and should you? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but then you but so maybe you might want to describe what you know, you have maybe seven or or, or six networks uh, that you have terms uh, that you've, that you've, or maybe not, maybe tell me your latest thinking on, yeah. on this. <laughs> well, so yeah, we, we uh, myself and Tavisio and Nathan Spring thought about this a couple of years ago and just put out a paper in 2019 that was a first pass of, okay, if we're going to talk the same language, can we at least agree on these terms for networks? And, and we thought probably no one's going to agree to this, but we're just going to put it out there. And it's true. Like nobody agrees to that, but, <laughs> but that prompted the uh, formation of this best practices committee, you know, on, on network nomenclature, which we came up with a clever acronym for, I think it's WhatNet Working Group on Harmonizing Taxonomies that uh, Anastasia Yandiki and our group came up with this nice acronym. So we'll, we'll see if that sticks, but in any case, that the working group was formed to try to harmonize some of the names that we use. So, um, you know, it's fine if you want to call something the default mode network, for example, but are you referring to some entity with a certain number of nodes, a certain spatial extent? For, that's the one that we sort of hear about the most. So, you know, but do we, I know some people will say, well, the hippocampus is part of it. And some people will say, no, it's not, you know, so we don't, it's not that we necessarily agree on what it is. We just think we do. I think we have a feeling that there's a consensus, but, um, you know, empirically it's not very well laid out. So, um, so we, you know, we're trying to, so that we're grappling with conceptual issues and philosophical issues. We have a philosopher on our team. We, you know, we're, we're, um, 
And, and all we've had so far is just a year, more than a year of really good discussions about things you've mentioned already, like individual differences and people are having, you know, different parcellation schemes. How do we incorporate these, these yeah. things and, and subcortical regions? Everyone forgets about the thalamus, but it's important. Where, where does it play a role in, in um, you know, these different functional networks? How do we not forget about the subcortical regions? <laughs> you know, these, these are all like different discussion points and just working groups discussions that we've had. So what we're trying to do now is summarize all of these important considerations, you know, in a set of recommendations for the field. And it, what we found is it's easy to identify the problems. What's harder is like, okay, what are we going to do about it? Yes. Um, and and well, well, what the Committee on Best Practices, um, you know, in data analysis and, and sharing what they initially did was say, okay, if you're going to have an fMRI paper, you should report these minimum things, right? Something about you know, there are multiple comparisons, corrections, and they just gave some guidelines. And I think that's what we're trying to do as a committee right now is come up with, well, if you're going to say, I have this thing and it, it shows, you know, activation in default mode network, well, what are you basing that claim on? Is it because there's some spatial overlap with the template? Is it because of, you know, some other criteria? So we're having a hard time, to be honest, coming up with, with what are going to yeah. be our recommendations because it's, there's a lot of opinions here. And the field is so young, as you know, we're still coming up with uh, ways to, to think about what is a brain network. So right. um, yeah, it's not easy going, I'll say that. It's really tricky. It's really hard because it's, um, even the concept of, of the network, as you, were, as you were saying before, is sort of like dependent on your, your spatial and temporal scale. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it and you certainly you know Russ Poldrack was was talking uh, you know has done some work talking about uh, cognitive ontologies mm -hmm. uh, and you don't want to be I mean you want to put your stake in the ground and say okay this is either this or this or 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 not um, mm -hmm. but at the same time you don't want you don't want the uh, the networks to to limit the, you know the terms to limit the understanding so you don't right. want to you know maybe default mode network is, you know, actually about 20 different networks that are, right. and, so, and so just calling it default mode sort of misses potentially mm -hmm. some of the nuance, but mm -hmm. you start somewhere. <laughs> right. That's exactly the problem is, is you have to start somewhere. The, the, reason, the reason I think this is a particularly pressing problem is that but the cognitive neuroscience literatures and the psychiatric neuroimaging literatures are blooming and blossoming and all that using the terminology that people have put forth who do resting state yes. work. So in resting state, we're saying things like default and salience. Now that's in a depression paper. Now that's in a you know, paper about attention and memory and whatever. And so people are adopting this terminology, whether we endorse it or not. So <laughs> we have to decide if we're going to continue along this path, which Maybe it's fine, but I, I've personally have seen, you know, people use terms interchangeably like mid-singular singular opercular network and salience network and other, other things that have insula and ACC um, components. And I don't know whether it's correct to continue to use those terms interchangeably or, or if we should really say, wait, people using that term mean this, whereas people using that term mean that, and then come to some, you know, recommendation about here's what you should use if you mean this, <laughs> here's yeah. what you should use if you mean that. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I, I totally agree with that. And then, of course, you know, certainly if you if you start having you know papers that you know just like Neurosynth that looks for keywords, right? It would really tighten up that those findings a lot more in that regard. Oh yeah, anything like that that uses just text mining is just only knows the words you used in the paper. And I think that's a huge problem for meta analyses if we're 
um, you know, biasing them from the start with our with the terms that we include. It's not any individual's fault. It's just how the the field has evolved. And so I think it's a good time to sit back and think about what we want going forward. Yeah, it's it's tricky. It's tricky. It, it reminds me a little bit of the early, the really early days of brain mapping when right, and when when Peter Fox, you know, wanted people to report all the chord bits. Mm. I mean, and it's still good to do that. I mean, we we have more sophisticated ways of doing that, but it both it, it kind of evolved. Um, but mm-hmm. you had to start with demanding something, and then right. and then evolving. And everyone pushed back against that and said, "Well, you know, let's say you do retinotopy and you have a tortuous." location of something how do you say a coordinate what's the center of mass of that you know Mm -hmm. and also with here you can imagine the uh you know certainly networks are it's more the story is more complicated than this but but you have to start with something and then you know you could imagine a a whole ontology of starting from this of different types of terminology or maybe you come up with a standard terminology Mm -hmm. that goes beyond you know the the 10 networks or whatever that we agreed upon Mm -hmm. at least starting it, it does seem like it would ratchet things forward, but what still bothers me a little bit is that, you know, like for instance, um, you know, in, in classifying organisms, I mean, it's usually related to some fundamental organizing principle, right. uh, you know, like you say, well, you know, this, you know, you, you name it according to some sort of, you know, it, it groups naturally, whereas mm-hmm. networks, it seems like, you know, you don't really know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You don't have any organizing principles yet, right. uh, and so is, does it really help? It's just not, basically helps us all talk to each other, right? In in actually, yeah, in building a, a like a hierarchy of understanding. And, yeah, I mean, I would argue that if we can't all talk to each other, we're really impaired in our ability to to even start to think about a hierarchy because we may be missing really important. Uh, empirical findings that would contribute to the building of a taxonomy. And you're right, it's, this is the kind, exact kind of discussion we've been having for a year and a half, which makes it very hard to write this paper. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's really hard. It's really hard because you want to be able to you know, start something that goes in the right direction. And I think right. that this is, it's just hard. <laughs> everyone sort of like has an intuitive feel like, well, it's, it's, a, it's a harder problem than this, but you have to start. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> So that's great. And, 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 and actually, I mean, do people, I mean, I mentioned this before, but it seems that, you know, and of course you talk about these networks a little bit in terms of you, you tag them with a behavior like the visual network, the sensory mm-hmm. motor, attention, mm-hmm. whatever salience. Um, but it seems like they're equally important. There should be an ontology of behavior yeah. uh, in some sense as well. Yeah. yeah. That's why we asked, you know, Russ to be part of this committee as well, because of uh, just, trying to incorporate cognitive ontologies into whatever we, we think of. Um, and that's, you know, just as hard as, as the, the network ontology problem. Um, and, and it's almost like we've bitten off more than we can chew when we, we started this out. But I thought, you know, it's been, I mean, I have all the recordings from all the meetings we've had, and I think we'll maybe make them part of the somehow available, but it's just interesting to see that although we have these different intuitions and different viewpoints, you know, we did a survey of OHBM members and said, here's a brain map. What do you call it? Basically, right? And so people filled out the survey and um, there was, you know, there was some consensus, like things like default mode. People said that's the default mode, et cetera. And there's other things where there was much less consensus, as you can imagine. And that tells us something about what the community is already doing, right? Um, and, you know, maybe maybe we can continue on as we're going, but I feel like we could be more precise. I feel like we want to be more precise. Um, and anything that can push us in the direction of that um, is hopefully a start. 
I definitely don't think we're going to solve the problem of like, what is a network and how many are there, but, <laughs> but really more of a, like, if you want to call something a network, here are some minimal reporting guidelines of what we would like to see so that we can, uh, you know, match this to some other finding in another lab, just the same way cord, cord, activation coordinates help you see if your findings overlap with someone else's findings. Yeah. Yeah. And it does seem like it makes a lot of sense to sort of tie it in with brain anatomy, uh, you know, the terms mm-hmm. in that regard. And so, uh, yeah, um, as opposed to just, you know, one can imagine like <laughs> our extreme, like just having a coordinate system. And this is like, you know, the, the, you know, A5, you know, whatever. Right. <laughs> dash something network doesn't, you know, it's nice to, it doesn't roll off the tongue. (laughs) Right. 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 So that's great. No, it's really great that you're doing this. Um, (laughs) Trying to, it's a tough problem. It's a tough problem, but I think like anything tough, I mean, it's sort of like, it really sort of of hits at one of the parts in understanding the brain that we need Mm -hmm. to push. Uh, The more we push on this, the more I think we'll foster research that helps understand the brain. Hopefully. Yeah, maybe very quickly. Uh, so um, another goal of what you're doing and what a lot of us do is to sort of, you know, one, it's one thing to be able to say, oh, you know, these group of autistic subjects have this difference in their brain activation, but it's a, it's a whole different problem to be able to, to put individual subjects in the scanner and make it clinically useful and maybe try to gauge a scale of, uh, you know, degree of severity and things like mm-hmm. that. And that's sort of related to, and you talk about this a little bit, the whole RDOC mm-hmm. initiative uh, at the NIH. And, that, and the goal mm-hmm. is to sort of use the data mm-hmm. sort as opposed to just using what's in the past uh, about, uh, you know, uh, behavioral assessment. So what do you think has been the progress so far, at mm-hmm. least with either your work or in general of the RDOC initiative? Uh, I think the good news is that people are uh, aware and, and understanding of the fact that disorders are not usually dichotomous, right? You usually have these continua and usually often comorbidity is the rule rather than the exception. And I think RDOC has done a good job of keeping that at the forefront of everyone's mind. I think it's it's hard to do the studies using an RDOC framework because you have to like triple your sample size or just get you know a lot more resources to get the kinds of power you need to do the analysis that would then be revealing. Um, it's also tricky because I'm not, I mean, even though I was on the group that defined the cognitive systems, I'm, I'm still not convinced that we've done the best job of, of, of developing a cognitive ontology there in order to, you know, push the field forward. But that, I mean, I think the first pass is good, but um, I think we're all like aware that, that dividing people up into case control isn't, you know, isn't really reflecting the way the real world works. But again, like this network problem, we're aware of the problem, but now how, how do we take some concrete action to, to move forward on it? And the other secret, of course, is that it's really hard to get individual subject reliable metrics from fMRI anyways. <laughs> so, I mean, if, if we were actually going to use this in the clinic for an individual case-by-case kind of prognostic uh, approach, then we would uh, have to really make sure we have some reliable metric and I don't know. I mean, as you know, as a methods person, like what would be that really reliable thing that we can get out of one individual? I'm not, I'm not sure that we're quite there yet. Yeah, no, it's, 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 uh, yeah, no, I, I see your point. And it's a well taken point that it takes a lot of data and, you know, even with the data, you have to slice it in a dimension that sort of makes the most meaning and it's complicated. <laughs> yeah, it's hard. It's hard because uh, right. When, but it might be, 
it, I think it's important as well, because right, if you take something like schizophrenia or whatever, you know, it could be a whole spectrum of things. And we're at the stage of trying to map that, have a mapping of that onto data, mm-hmm. but it doesn't map well. And maybe we have to, you know, think carefully about the mapping in that regard. Yeah. Yeah, I think, yeah, that's why basic neuroscience is so important and I think really underfunded because, you know, how can we say, well, definitely this is what's going on in the brain of someone with schizophrenia if we're still like struggling to think about what's going on in the brain, period. <laughs> it's yeah. it's like uh, we're putting the cart before the horse if we don't do the basic neuroscience, at least alongside the clinical neuroscience. Yeah, and they're both tied together. I mean, we, we do... Right. You know, and I, I often, you know, sometimes I'm very optimistic and, and I think I actually feel like fMRI along with other, you know, use being used with other techniques will lend like real insight into, into mechanisms of brain function. It's just, um, it just feels like, you know, we're, we're close to maybe some convergence, but at the same time, we have a long way to go. <laughs> like when, <laughs> even when people talk about mechanisms, like for instance, even looking at, you know, the salience at, at network, you know, driving other areas. You see it's active. You see fMRI shows a signal change, but you don't know what's actually going on uh, as mm-hmm. far as the mechanism. You know, how does it drive these areas? What, you know, what, right. what's the circuitry? What's the, you know, at what level do we need to describe it before we feel comfortable that there's a mechanistic ex- explanation? Yeah, maybe we have to go back to our animal research colleagues. Yeah, or just and, you know, <laughs> iterate in, in some way. Right. So uh, before I just uh, start wrapping up a little bit here. Um, mm-hmm. I just want to, you know, I, it's interesting. Um, there was talk of, you know, you, you, you mentioned ADHD as well, and you have this one paper uh, looking at uh, the resting state brain signal variability in prefrontal cortex. And I thought that was kind of cool in a sense that, you, you know, trying to come up with a number or, uh, you know, just simply variability mm-hmm. that might uh, uh, explain disorders or might be relevant. And I've seen in the literature, and it's sort of contradictory in some sense. Some people say, "Oh, variability is good." Mm-hmm. Some say it's bad. It's some indicative of dementia or whatever. So, what do you think of of just trying to collapse things in in this regard? Yeah, I mean, I think that variability is really intriguing because I've seen some links to you know bold signal variability being a predictive of better cognitive flexibility, for example. But then, you know, having less variable signals seems to be related to stability uh, or remaining on a task set or in a particular task set. So it's, it's like probably everything else, like too much variability is not going to be good either for, for um, processing. But yeah, I, I thought about this a little bit in terms of what, what we think is important and what we think is not important. And for, you know, many years, we thought like spontaneous activity, maybe it's just not that interesting. But of course, now we're using it to map the brain. So, um, you know, and you have like, you know, individual neurons show spontaneous activity, you know, they're, they're going to be firing whether or not there's inputs. So, um, you know, there's a lot of theories now about, you know, what that's important for functionally. And, and this is a variability in the signals. Another one of those things where you could write it off as noise and say, well, every signals, every biological system has shows variability, but, um, you know, then people have started to link it to these other outcomes, which, um, I think is, is really just, interesting um, because yeah, no, nothing is like a really clean system when it comes to biology, right? And so either the variability is noise and we don't care about it, or it has some functional significance. And, and I think it's, um, you know, we often have this 
throw the baby out with the bathwater thing where we're like, ah, oh, we don't need that. It's noise. It's noise. But then 10 years later, we're like, wait a minute, that was actually important. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm always kind of a fan of like digging through the bathwater a little bit more. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's right. And that's a <laughs> good analogy. I mean, you know, certainly there is noise and, 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 you know, un, non-useful signal. In, in the, and that's, you know, a lot of what people are trying to get rid of is all the non-informative noise, but hopefully not mm-hmm. throwing out the information. Yeah. And, and there might be that variability uh, in certain contexts might be a perfect, you know, metric, just like people measure blood pressure and, and infer so many things and do so many mm-hmm. clinical, you can just look at variability in, in this sense. Who knows? Yeah. Yep. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Um, okay. So just um, let's quit quickly uh, just touch upon your, you know, you've been very active uh, in the field, you just uh, you just um, been highlighted in terms of uh, women in neuroscience, and you've been working on on mentoring in diversity. Um, in fact, at OHBM, you won the the diversity award in 2021. So, do you think one we're making progress, uh, and do you think that the mechanisms for making progress are are on the right track? And how do you think it actually be solved? I mean, what will a solution look like? Oh, wow. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, a solution would be like an overhaul of society and going back in time, (laughs) a time machine. But, you know, given what we have and the the way that, you know, systemic inequalities in society contribute to the way that careers can pan out for different individuals, I think we have a lot more awareness of the issues now than we did, let's say, three years ago. And so now, um, you know, you can't get away with sort of ignoring the fact of the matter that some people have been systematically oppressed and left out of of a lot of initiatives. And so I think now that there's awareness, the question is like, so what are we going to do about it? Are some people going to actually give up the privilege that they have to, you know, make room? Uh, nobody wants to give up <laughs> something right. that that they already have. But I don't think there's like a, it's not a, you know, if I get something, you get less. It's in academia, right? There's room for, for uh, in fact, it's strengthened by a diversity of opinions and by, um, you know, viewpoints and skills and um, you know, from all over the world and, and from people with different backgrounds. So I think we're, we're realizing that, you know, diversity is a strength. We want to, um, you know, support in different ways the, the careers of individuals who haven't had that support in the past. And I think we can, we can all do things actively to, to mentor, for example. We can, you know, reach out if we see someone who's an international student who just came here and, and they're having trouble navigating the system. I mean, how would how would you feel if you landed in a country where you don't speak the language as your first language? You know, just think about you know uh, reaching out a little bit more. Um, and there's just like things like the pandemic has made us do all these virtual meetings. So many more mothers with young kids are now participating in meetings because they can do it from home. They don't have to leave and travel for three days. And we could have done this all along, but now we're and, you know, and the right. same with individuals yes. with disabilities. We can you can we can accommodate a lot more on Zoom than we could have in person. We can continue to do this, you know, and going forward. There's no reason to leave, you know. Now that we've made all these advances, there's no reason to go back to the way it always was. So we, I mean, we'll always enjoy in-person conferences. We'll always enjoy that, um, you know, camaraderie that comes with having dinner together, but. We also know that having this hybrid virtual component can bring participation of individuals who might have otherwise not been able to participate. So I think we're we're making like leaps and bounds of progress, but um, you can still see, you know, at the higher levels, um, a lot of uh, resistance to change oftentimes. But um, but you know, it happens slowly. It happens generationally, and it happens with. Um, people who are really allies and advocates who are saying, you know, I see this problem. I'm at the top. What can I do? 
um, and just, you know, reaching out and uh, saying, I'm here to help. So I think I've seen a lot more of that, uh, which is heartening. Yeah, no, that's actually very heartening. And actually, like you said, transparency as well, sort of having having metrics uh, of this. So you actually can monitor, you know, in some sense, what, how far we're coming. And I also think, right, I mean, I think that, uh, at least to me, when people ask me about this, I, I say, well, you know, it's a, sort of a systemic problem. And so if we can sort of, as much as possible, provide opportunities to people early on mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and on roads early on, then it will, it will over time trickle up and, and there'll be less of an issue uh, as far as that's concerned. Hopefully, you know, giving the opportunities all the way along, but, that, but really emphasizing, you know, people in high school or, mm-hmm. uh, you know, giving them opportunities in that regard. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's such small things we can do that remove barriers, like the GRE is an expensive, unnecessary test. You know, just a lot of uh, graduate programs have stopped using it. I don't think the quality of students is changed because of that. So, um, you know, it's just simple gatekeeping things that we, we can think about, you know, is having a, this particular requirement disadvantaging people in a particular way? And is it really buying us that much more? If not, then why are we doing this? You know, we don't, we don't have to keep giving these testing companies all our money. <laughs> and that's interesting, though, because, um, yeah, no, I agree with that. I also wonder, though, um, in, in, in at least the motivation in the past for GREs, right, has been sort of an objective measure. Mm-hmm. And it always obviously falls short of that. And because it is somewhat culturally biased and whatever, and you might, um, but at the same time, you, you want to always, it would be nice to be able to come up with some sort of truly objective mm-hmm. measure that, so it doesn't allow, you know, uh, graduate schools, I mean, to, to still, you know, sort of bias things, you have to have something otherwise, right. Let's say a graduate school, then you can just take whoever you want for whatever reason. And you don't have to be, tra- I guess the transparency part is important. So. Yeah. And then, you know, you've had things like GPA and other, you know, work yeah. experiences and letters of reference, but yeah, the question is how do you use them? And, you know, there's, there's a, uh, everyone has biases. It's not that anyone is like, above anyone else in that way. But we, we, when we know that we have them, how do we check them or how do we guard against uh, you know, using them in, in a way that further advantages some groups and disadvantages others? So, we, I mean, I'm, I'm really happy to see all the awareness and progress. There's all a long way to go. There, there's always gonna be a long way to go. But I, I think um, you know, some of the organizations that we're involved in like OHBM are really at the forefront of this. So I'm on diversity committees across like multiple organizations and multiple <laughs> spaces. But I think OHBM has made more progress in this field, uh, in this area, um, because it permeates every discussion we have, like from program committee to the student postdoc group to the, um, you know, uh, even the brain art SIG, like they're all aware and, and interested in promoting um, diversity as values. So I think it's, it's great to be a part of a community that is, is so forward thinking. Yeah. And it's great that you're pushing that as well. And I, yeah, I do think that there's a slow change in the culture, definitely. And it's hopefully still, you know, keeps on going in the right direction. Yeah. So last questions, uh, very, very last questions. Um, sure. So, you know, I caught you in the middle of moving. Um, so you're starting at, uh, you're going back to UCLA. And mm-hmm. uh, so, so maybe talk a little bit about, uh, you know, what you're going to be doing there. If, is any of your research going to be changing who, you know, what you're excited about as far as uh, starting up there? Yeah, well, I'm excited to come home to Los Angeles, and uh, I think I'll be doing what I'm doing, but bigger, <laughs> because uh, there's a lot of uh, folks to collaborate with, and I'm already on like five different grant submissions this month, so it's clear that there's a, a lot of excitement um, around, you know, 
connectivity, network science, um, autism, of course. So I'm really excited to, to just jump right in. And, um, you know, I haven't been as involved in these large uh, data collection efforts. You know, there's things like ABCD and, and you know, human connector projects, but I think I'll be more involved in these kind of like large scale data collection initiatives going forward and, uh, you know, continue to take students, training, postdocs, all the things I enjoy doing, <laughs> you know, and uh, also, you know, I'm sort of mid-career, but I feel like it'd be, I, I did just have a year of sabbatical, but it didn't feel very restful. So, <laughs> so maybe take a little bit of a breather too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's almost the worst time to have a sabbatical because it's like, everyone's kind of on sabbatical in some weird way. I mean, <laughs> right. of, you know, we're all sort of, <laughs> <laughs> but no, I'm very excited to be continuing my career there and I really look forward to it. Oh, good, good. Well, we look forward to seeing what you'll be doing. And I'm sure that'll be equally, if not more successful than what you have been doing. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right. Well, well, thank you very much for talking. And, uh, you know, I'm sure that everyone's, you know, everyone, I think a lot of neuroscientists are inspired by your success, because, you know, it's sort of, it really does sort of straddle the, the the methods and applications and the clinical applications and understanding the brain. And we're all struggling with this and they see that the progress you're making and it really does sort of cause people to, to feel motivated in, in, in grappling with this problem as well and these challenges as well. <laughs> well, yeah, I appreciate that. I think by being transparent about the challenges, that's how we can move forward. So um, yeah, I, I love talking about these issues and I'm glad that you're creating this forum. So thanks very much. All right. Well, thank you. Thank you. All right. Neurosalience is brought to you by the Organization for Human Brain Mapping. This week's episode was produced by Kevin Seatek and Rachel Stickland.